Good morning. Uh, as David introduced, my name is Josue Pernillo. My full name is actually quite long as Latin names tend to be. It's Josue Efrain Pernillo Montenegro, because it's both my father's last name and my mother's last name. And last time I gave a cool introduction, so this one I gave another one with my name. Uh, I will be preaching this morning. I recently graduated from seminary, and the elders in Luke gave me the opportunity to preach uh, on these two Sundays, just so I could practice and grow. And I am a little nervous. I didn't realize it until David mentioned the doors, because I did not notice that they were painted. That was the first time I heard about it. But the Lord is gracious and good, and so... If you could please turn with me to Philippians 1, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18, and the title of today's sermon is, Through External Pressures and Internal Tensions. So that's Philippians 1, verse 12 through 18, and it reads, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ, and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Uh, there's a common trope in movies, and it might be sort of movies that you like. I like to call them like the struggle movies, or like the journey movies, where like, you know, the hero has to make a long journey to achieve some goal, and they face various obstacles. And the movie that I think captures that the best is the 1987 movie called The Brave Little Toaster. Now, you may disagree with me, but in my opinion, The Brave Little Toaster, which is about an inanimate toaster who comes to life because he wants to go to college with the person that owns him. <laughs> it's goofy. I really shouldn't have made this illustration, but I, do, I really like that movie, and any chance I can talk about it, I will. Go, gets with other inanimate material objects, come to life, and then they cross through like the entire Pacific Northwest to get to where the person is going. It has everything. A lamp gets struck by lightning. It's like, it's a phenomenal movie. Like the toaster sacrifices himself to like stop a hydraulic press, like legitimately. Some people might say that the Lord of the Rings is better in terms of a journey movie. But what they had to do in nine hours, the little toaster achieved in 90 minutes. And so brevity is the soul of wit, right? So the brave little toaster is the epitome of journey movies. But what is it about those movies where the hero faces some sort of obstacle and adversity that is appealing? Whether it's a movie about a battle or a journey or people struggling and overcoming insurmountable odds with courage and dignity. What is it about those in the silver screen that inspires us? What is it in our lives that we feel are obstacles that we can face? And in today's passage, Paul, writing to his friends, appeals to them and encourages them in the face of adversity. And how we as Christians should view and look at our struggles throughout a journey. 
the book, the letter of Philippians, which is a book in our Bible, is one of the prison epistles because Paul wrote it in prison. It's to the Philippians who are his friends. It's one of his most intimate, personal, caring letters. It has beautiful themes. He talks about humility and joy. They're on the back of like the cards that you give graduates, like rejoice in the Lord always. Um, it talks about eschatology, the end times, a Christian mindset, what it means to live for Christ, and friendship. And in this week, in this passage this week, we're going to look at how Paul, as a friend, encourages his friends in the midst of adversity. As they are on their journey of faith, they have come to face obstacles. So Paul, in the rest of chapter 1, after the introduction, so that's 12 through 26, encourages them in their circumstance. And by God's grace, as we look into these verses, we also will be encouraged as we face obstacles in our faith. And so he does this by providing two examples, and they're going to be the two points of today's sermon. How we can have confidence in the midst of external pressure, and how we can have joy in the midst of internal tensions. So for our first point, how we can have confidence in the midst of external pressure, and that's verses 12 through 14. So verse 12, it says, I want you to know, brothers... And this was a common phrase that was used in letters of friendship at the day. It was a way to transition from the theme that you were talking about. So in usual letters, you introduce yourself, hi, I'm Josue, and then you say, like, let me tell you about myself. It's the same sort of, like, formula that's going on here. So Paul is saying, gave a really long, beautiful introduction, which we talked about last time, and then he transitions by saying, really in the original language it says, I wish for you to come to the knowledge of... But what he does here is different from traditional letters because, one, he actually does not talk about himself. What you would have expected is Paul to say, look, the prison, prison food's okay. I just met so-and-so yesterday, or they're holding me at this house. I think I'm going to be here this long. Hopefully they'll let me out, or like, I got new clothes, or Timothy finally brought me the scrolls. That's a little reference to Timothy if you didn't know because he asked him for his scrolls. <laughs> little Bible joke. Anyway, <laughs> but he doesn't say that. He doesn't talk about himself. Rather, he says that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And that's how he changes the traditional trope. Not only does he not talk about himself, in what he does talk about, he aims to ease the tensions of the Philippians to whom he's writing. They would have expected for someone that was in prison for the gospel that that would be a blow to the witness of the gospel in Rome. But Paul eases their tensions. He says, even though I am in prison, not only has it not hindered the gospel, but it has served to advance the gospel. And he explains that in the next two verses. Because the question becomes, how? Right? Is he just being like brave? Like you ever ask somebody like, hey, how are you doing? It's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm living great. And you're like, mm, no, you're not, right? <laughs> like, he's not being like that. He's being genuine. And so we look at verse 13. If his imprisonment hasn't served to hinder the gospel, how then has it advanced it? And he says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. Now the word there 
and I have to nerd out a little bit because the word there originally is talking about the, like the Praetorian Guard. But it could mean that Paul is imprisoned in the governor's palace, as some people argue in Ephesus or in, I think, Caesarea. But the way that he uses it in this letter, and later in chapter 4 he says, greetings and those of Caesar's household greet you, can lead us to assume that who he's talking about is the Praetorian Guard of Caesar himself, which were an incredibly powerful military force that in several times supplanted the emperor himself. They were the cream of the crop. They were the top in terms of military power in their day. But what he says is that to them, in Rome, to these top military officials and soldiers, it has become known, right, that my imprisonment is for Christ. So the Praetorian Guard would have been aware that people who are in chains, which is another translation of this, would be in chains because they're criminals. Chains to them would signify that this person was under the power of Caesar. But that's not what Paul says. He says that my chains and my imprisonment have not become a symbol of the power of Caesar. Rather, it has become a symbol of the power of Christ. That I'm not in here because I'm a criminal. I'm not in here because I've worked against society. But rather, his language is for Christ. And it's really actually really beautiful if you read that carefully because it doesn't say on behalf of Christ. It doesn't say in the midst of Christ. It doesn't say because of Christ. It rather says in the original language, in Christ, which as Reformed people, we usually like that word, in Christ, in Christos. What he's saying is because I am a Christian, because I am one who is found within the grace of God, because I've been called and chosen in Christ, I have become in prison, and that is my testimony to people who otherwise might never have heard the gospel or ever met a Christian. Instead of limiting his testimony, because he is in Christ, it shows the earthly powers, the power of Christ. Paul is not in prison because of the power of Caesar. Paul is in prison because he is in Christ. And that's his testimony. And the gospel is not hindered. Although he is not able to itinerantly preach, he is still able to wear witness to the gospel in the midst of external pressures. But that wasn't the only way that the gospel was advanced in his imprisonment. In verse 14, it says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So God has used Paul's imprisonment as a means to encourage what's there is the brothers or can be summarized as the believers in Rome. And so the language is really careful because they became confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. Right? Grammar, believe it or not, is actually really important. <laughs> I didn't think so, but it is. And in this situation is rather important because they're not emboldened just because Paul is in prison. They're not emboldened because he's such a great witness. They're not emboldened because he's like a great preacher and then he's encouraging them. They're confident 
in the Lord. And so the question becomes, how is it that a group of people in Rome, seeing Paul in prison and seeing him in chains, grow fearless from that? And I think it's two things. One, it's seeing the example of the aged apostle bravely facing his circumstances that served as some inspiration to them to grow confident in the Lord. But the second is also true, that though he is chained, God still reigns. And the same God that stood with Paul stands with them. And so their confidence is not in Paul or in their eloquence or in their skill or in their knowledge, but their confidence is in the Lord. It does not stem from Paul's fearlessness, but from the God whom they both serve. What should be a sign of defeat, which are Paul's chains, becomes a sign of victory. And the brothers in Rome grow fearless. And they preach. And they confess. Although they should be afraid. And Paul hopes by that expressing this to the Philippians. Because he's writing to his friends. Who are also struggling with external pressure. You see that in verse 28 when he writes. Do not fear those who oppose you. And stand, far, stand firm later in Philippians 4. They were also facing external pressures. And especially in Philippi, a Roman colony, their loyalties were being questioned. They were blamed for not being loyal to Rome or to the Caesar because they worshiped another Lord. But to them, Paul reminds them that God is with us. Um, there's a, like when I <clears throat> like feel discouraged, there's like, things I read. One of the things is a river runs through it by Norman McLean, because I just really like it. I, again, that's just something I like. I'm not going to mention it again in the sermon. But another thing is the letters of Samuel Rutherford, which is a, a rather famous Puritan. Sometimes we sing his hymns, like the sands of time are sinking. I think he was part of the Westminster uh, Assembly, and I'm looking to Luke to confirm that. And he was. Uh, <laughs> I think. But there's a letter that he wrote because he faced persecution in his day. And I was gonna write it out, but I just wanted to bring the book because it's like an old English and it takes a long time to write out. But this was before he was exiled uh, to Aberdeen. He was taken away from his congregation and he writes to his friend on the eve of his banishment, the honor that I have prayed for these 16 years with submission to my Lord's will, my kind Lord hath now bestowed upon me, even to suffer for my royal and princely Lord Jesus and for his kingly crown, and the freedom of his kingdom and his father has given him. The forbidden lords have sentenced me with deprivation and confinement within the town of Aberdeen. I am charged in the king's name to enter again on the 20th day of August next and there to remain during the king's pleasure as they have given it out. And then he writes this, before he's banished and he's taken away from his congregation, how be it, Christ's green's cross newly laid upon me be somewhat heavy while I call to mind the many fair days and sweet and comfortable to my soul and the souls of many others and how young ones in Christ are plucked from my breast and the inheritance of God laid waste, yet that sweet-smelled and perfumed cross of Christ is accompanied with sweet refreshments, with the kisses of a king, with the joy of the Holy Ghost, with faith that the Lord hears the sighing of a prisoner, with undoubted hope, as sure as my Lord lives." After this night to see daylight and Christ's sky to clear up again, 
upon me and his poor Kirk, and that in a strange land among strange faces, he will give favor in the eyes of men to his poor oppressed servant who cannot but love that lovely one, that princely one, Jesus, the comforter of his soul. We are not the first Christians to face pressure. And it doesn't take a master of culture or somebody who understands deeply the pulse of society to notice that in general, culture has shifted away from Christian values. And rather, there is now an anxiety, doubt, and animosity towards a Christian worldview, Christians in general. Some of those rose from scandals that happened in the church and in denominations. Some of them grew from improper witness. But regardless of the reason, the truth is that culture has shifted. And that oftentimes, as a Christian, you will find yourself in the periphery. This can lead us to feel hopeless or awkward or try to make excuses or to try to change society, to move back to a place that we can understand and that we would be comfortable to live in. But the passage today reminds us, we are not the first Christians to face external pressure. But from the beginning, Christ's church always faced opposition. Our job is not to change the world. That's God's job. Our job is to bear witness, is to confess the gospel that has changed our lives. Our trust, like the trust of those in Philippi and in Rome, and our confidence is in God. We have confidence in the midst of external pressures, not because we are great or we can come up with great programs or we're fearless or we're eloquent, or we don't get anxious because we are limited, but God is not limited. That's what Paul is telling them. You may fall short, but God doesn't fall short. Later in Timothy, Paul writes, he says, I am chained, but the gospel is not chained. We are part of a much greater story that takes place through people and centuries and nations. We're part of a long story, and we too are in Christ, and we too can have confidence in the God who has never abandoned his people in the midst of external pressures. Because whether in Rome or in Philippi or in Champaign-Urbana, our God never changes. He is not limited. So Paul not only talks about external pressure, but then shifts it. Because not only do, did he face external pressure, but then he also faced internal tensions. And that brings us to our second point, point number, dose. And that's verses 15 through 18. And he begins by saying, or writing, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. And here, what Paul does is he presents two people or two types of people that are motivated in preaching. And the question, though it may seem pedantic, is important, is who are the some? 
Because in the previous verse, he said, most of the brothers have gone encouraged and emboldened to preach the gospel. So are the some fellow Christian believers or are the some heretics or enemies of Paul? And within the context of the letter, it becomes more difficult because he uses the phrase envy and rivalry as the motivation for those who are against Paul to preach. Envy and rivalry were condemned in Galatians 5 um, as the works of the flesh. They serve as a proof of a depraved mind in Romans 1. And there are the characteristics of those who are enslaved by passions in Titus 3.3. Even in the contemporary culture, envy and rivalry were looked down upon by the philosopher Plutarch. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but Plutarch, uh, because they were bad for the general public life. And so who were the some? I do not think, though some scholars may argue, that it was false teachers or heretics because Paul does not rebuke them for their teaching. Paul doesn't rebuke them for what they're saying. Rather, it is the motive by which they're saying it that's the issue. In truth, within the context of the letter, we can assume that the sum were fellow Christians in the city of Rome who stood against Paul. But that's uh, complicated and messy because that would mean that a fellow Christian in Rome seeing Paul in prison for the gospel would preach to make Paul's life more difficult. But I think that's what this text is saying. There are those, as it says, that are preaching out of goodwill. But then there are also those who are preaching out of envy and rivalry. And that is a tension. That within the same Christian community, people are divided. People are envious and selfish. And so what does that mean? Verse 14 goes on to explain those of good motive by saying those of good motive, right? They, some preach Christ out of goodwill. And then in verse 16, it says, the latter do it out of love, meaning that the motivation for their preaching and confession of Christ in the midst of difficult external pressures is out of love, not only for God, but also for Paul, because it, then it follows up by saying, knowing that I am put here in the defense of the gospel. They know that Paul is not in prison for himself, but for Christ. It's a military language of when you capture like an enemy prisoner. They're put here in defense for the gospel. And they recognize that. Those who are motivated by love, they recognize that Paul is suffering because he is in Christ, as we mentioned earlier. He is not there to defend himself Rather, he is there as a defense of the gospel. Verse 17 then again clarifies who are those that are envious and, uh, and doing things out of rivalry. And it says the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry. Some versions say selfish ambition, which is like, actually I do think is a more accurate translation. What we can understand is that there are fellow Christians within the church of Rome that seeing Paul struggle, preach Christ out of selfish ambition. This is, not this is not to justify selfish ambition. Later, Paul will rebuke it in Philippians chapter 2. Selfish ambition is something to be avoided. 
Do, no, do nothing out of selfish ambition, he says. But rather here, in Paul's most difficult moment, before he faces death, there are those who, wanting to advance their own agenda, position, and power, who think that they can preach better than Paul himself, preach the gospel, preach the truth, but they do so out of selfish ambition. And it goes farther by saying, not sincerely, that's the second part of verse 17, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Which means this, there's selfishness and division even within the Church of Rome. And people are preaching the truth, not only because they think they can do it better, but to cause them problems. Paul does not romanticize his situation. Paul doesn't rewrite the story to make himself look good. He doesn't say that everyone's supporting me and things are great. Oh. Not only is he imprisoned under Rome facing external pressures within the same community that he serves and the people that he should work together with and those who should love him, there are those that not only judge him but make things more difficult. They are those who strive to make a bad situation worse. And these internal tensions threaten to tear the community apart, which is also what the Philippian church was experiencing. It's why Paul wrote Philippians 2. It's why he called them to humility. It's why he called them to serve one another. And so what should we do? How does Paul respond? And that's what makes verse 18 so beautiful, because he says, so what, right? What then? It's like, he starts with a question, which is really confusing. It's like, okay, right? But he goes to say, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. He summarizes his feelings, which he'll later say in verse 21 by saying, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul, in prison, in chains, being brought trouble by people who should be helping him and working together in him, with him, still trusts in God. Not only that, he has joy in God. It is not, he doesn't reflect on the trouble caused by his imprisonment, but rather on the gospel. His focus is that Christ is proclaimed, even in the midst of internal tensions. This does not serve as a way to justify selfish ambition or to say that we should ignore problems or things that hurt us, because later in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about the comfort that comes from God. But it comes to remind the Philippian believers and us that although there can be rivalry and envy and selfish ambition, although we may struggle and there be internal tensions, does not hinder our God. That's Paul's encouragement to them. Um, when I was a kid, I grew up in a more like non-denominational church in the north side of Chicago. Um, they, we used to go like during the weekdays in the summer, 
they would drive us, this is, this is really embarrassing, but they would drive us to the bus, like the train stations, and we would go evangelize. Now, I was like 13 or 14, and I was an awkward, I'm an awkward adult, but I was a far more awkward 13 or 14 year old. So as you can believe, the entire event was very awkward, but it did happen. And there's a picture of my house of me. My job was to play the piano in the subway station. Like once they tried to get me to talk to people and it did not go well. So then they're like, oh, just play the piano. And I would like sing songs in the subway station, you know? And there was, we used to do that in the summers. And there was one person who would always come whose name was Paul. And to, to be honest with you, I don't remember his last name, but he was always there and he was always like a chill hang. Like you'd always just talk to him. Like, hey, Paul, because we'd be like, we'd have to train, take the train back and forth. It was, we used to do the red line and the blue line. Not that that matters, but it matters to me. Um, and, you know, he was really cool. And then Paul had been in prison before, and then he um, got out. With, his life was changed by the gospel. And he, um, he would always preach, but he got sick. His, uh, you know, he had liver cancer. And he uh, passed away. I remember I was very young. Um, it was one of the first funerals I attended. And during his funeral, they told this story about Paul and about those times we used to go evangelizing. And they said, you know, he was sitting on the train right back and, believe it or not, like singing songs in the Chicago subway and handing out tracks was not bearing a lot of fruit. Um, but, um, but one time Paul was riding back on the train and he just looks to his friend and he says, like, oh, I just want a banana. And his friend was, like, really confused. It's like, what? Like, we can eat when we get off. But what Paul was trying to say is, like, oh, I wish I could see some fruit. Right? I wish I could see some fruit. And, you know, I don't remember his last name. Sorry. Excuse me. And he's not famous, right? He didn't write any books. He doesn't impress anybody. Um... He doesn't have a compilation of letters. And I don't know if a lot of people remember him. But that man loved the gospel. Man, I hate crying. Sorry. Yeah, that man loved God. And that's what I remember. He didn't gain anything by preaching. Um, But to his death, He proclaimed the truth. Paul challenges the Philippians to check their motives. Because if we're honest about ourselves and the churches that we've been a part of or the communities, we can be aware too that selfish ambition, rivalry, and envy are real things. Whether in our lives or in the lives of others. And Paul warns us against that, as he warned the Philippian believers. We are called, one of the things that this passage calls us, is to reflect on the things that motivate our heart and to consider one another, to serve in humility. Later in Philippian, Paul writes, let your gentleness be evident to all. But it is not only to understand the motive of our hearts that Paul writes. This passage reminds us that we too can rejoice in the gospel. 
It does not mean that you have to go to the subways of Chicago to preach. That is not an appropriate application from this sermon. If God calls you to that, like, feel free. Um, but in our jobs and in our lives and with the people that God brings us, we can bear witness to our friends and our coworkers and our family. There may be times we feel like we may be the only Christian in a place or in a spot, but lest we forget that God always keeps for himself 7,000 in a cave. Let us be faithful then to wherever God has called us and to whomever God brings in our life. Although we too can experience internal tensions and grieving and strivings within our Christian communities, but even in those moments, even if that was true, we can rejoice because Christ is proclaimed. That does not mean we agree with everything that everyone does all the time, always. But even this Sunday morning, all over our city and our state and our country and our nation and our world, Christ is proclaimed. Christians are gathering today from every tribe, tongue, and nation in various languages. Some sing hymns, some contemporary, some have drum sets, some don't. But Christ is proclaimed. And in that, we can rejoice. Because where we are limited, God is not limited. He is the one who overcomes. Because of the gospel, because of God, we can trust him in the midst of adversity. We can have confidence in the midst of external pressures and joy in the midst of internal tensions because although we may be limited, God is not limited. Although we may be chained, the gospel is not chained. God is the great evangelist. It is his work and he will build his church. Our strength may fail, but God's strength never fails. And so to conclude, I just wanted to read a passage from 2 Corinthians that we read earlier, which is one of my favorite passages. So, this is 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you that we could uh, gather and we just lift up our hearts to you, God. Uh, knowing that we face different external pressures and problems, difficulties, that we can face different internal tensions and adversity, but praying, Lord, that you would help us uh, to put our trust in you, <clears throat> to not try to do all things ourselves, but to know that you are a God who is not limited. 
that our God does not sleep or slumber, but watches over us. So Lord, help us. Help us and our community to be one where love is shown, where gentleness is evident, that we can proclaim, Lord, not only here, but in our workplaces and to our family, day by day, the truth and the beauty of the gospel, that we could reflect the glory of Christ in our lives, though we carry these treasures in jars of clay. And so we look to you, God, and we put our trust in you because we know that you never fail. In Jesus' name we pray.